We're going to be looking at two passages uh, from the Bible this morning. The first passage is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Allow me to read it out for us. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The second passage we're going to be looking at this morning is Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? This is the word of the Lord. Both these passages are quite obviously about unity. And today's sermon is going to be a little different in the sense that it's not going to be an expository sermon, meaning we're not going to really explain this passage this morning, as we generally do every Sunday with the passage we pick. But today I'm going to show us, I'm hoping to show us in God's grace, how we are going to live in the kind of unity that these two passages are calling us to, as members of one church. How are we going to live in the kind of unity that these two passages are calling us to? Um, for those of you who are part of New City, you've been coming regularly. We are in the fifth week of a sermon series titled, What is the Church? If this is your first time in New City, or if you're just visiting us, uh, all the earlier sermons are available online. In this sermon series titled, What is the Church? The first two weeks, we laid the foundation on what is the local church. And the next two weeks, we labored on what does it mean to be a member of the local church. And after four sermons, uh, I think I'm beginning to finally come up with some kind of a loose definition of membership, loose definition of membership in the local church. And this is based on Romans chapter 12, uh, the sermon we preach, the third sermon in the series. I think this could be a kind of a working definition uh, we kind of toss around a little bit. Biblical membership in a local church is a covenantal lifestyle of worship, fellowship, and engaging our culture with the gospel. So biblical membership in a local church is a covenantal lifestyle. It's not a legalistic process. It's not about filling out forms and standing for elections. and Not, not, not that. It's a biblical covenantal lifestyle. It means that we are in covenant with one another and with God to live our lives in a certain way. Now, to be members of a local church we all need to be united in agreement over at least some 
basic doctrines. Uh, you and I both know that this is not easy. Globally, if you look at good and Christ-honoring and Bible-believing and Spirit-filled and true and faithful churches, all excellent churches all over the world, they are not in agreement on many issues. I'm not even talking about Catholic churches here. We have big differences with them. Uh, I'm talking about Bible-believing Protestant churches, different denominations and different churches, all good, godly churches do not agree on all doctrines. And there are four major areas where faithful and Bible-believing churches are not agreed upon. I'm going to highlight four of those differences. Some churches are reformed in their theology. Other churches are Armenian in their theology. I'm going to explain all of this today. Uh, that's the first big difference. Some churches hold the view that the miraculous spiritual gifts and other spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy have ceased. Other churches believe these gifts continue to this day. That's the second area of disagreement. As some churches, good churches, all of these are good Bible-believing churches. Some churches believe in baptizing infants. Other churches follow only baptism of believers, mostly adults, or at least, you know, children 13, 14, who are able to make some kind of a decision for themselves. This is the third big area of disagreement. Lastly, all churches believe that men and women are equal, but some churches believe that men and women are similar. Uh, that is, men can do all things women can do, and women can do all things that men can do. They're called egalitarian churches. Other churches believe that God has created us male and female with inherent differences that are mutually beneficial to each other. These are called complementarian churches. And this is the fourth area of difference. If this is your very first time in a church, I hope I have not freaked you out. You know, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel tells us that we don't become perfect to be loved by God. As the songs we sung reminded us, the gospel tells us that we're all messed up. And God saves us through the sacrifice of his son, Christ Jesus. And even after receiving salvation by grace, we still mess up. So just like families fight, just because a husband and wife fights or a parent fights with the children doesn't mean the family is really bad, is it? We're all, we do have conflicts in families, right? And so it is with churches. And so, uh, so please don't freak out if this is your very first time in a church and you're wondering, what have I uh, walked into? I hope this, this conversation is going to be uh, helpful uh, to you as well. At New City Church, we're now moving towards walking together in covenantal membership. And as we do that, Amos 3.3, unless two agree together, how can we walk together? So we need to agree, come to agreement on some kind of an agreement on some of these tricky doctrines. Not tricky doctrines, doctrines where churches are divided on. And that's why I've titled today's sermon, Where We Stand on Issues the Global Church is Not Agreed On. So today, we're going to lovingly and humbly 
uh, understand these differences and see what kind of agreement we can come together so that we can walk in unity together as the local church, in the local church that God has placed us in. Um, if you remember, a few weeks ago, as we began the series, I said this is the most difficult sermon series I've had to preach. And today I have to tell you that in the most difficult sermon series that I've ever preached in the last 10 years, this is the most difficult sermon. So we do need to pray. Let us pray. I've written a small prayer. Would you join with me in, in humbly and faithfully praying this? Our Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word into our hearts that we may wholly see and wholly align with our Lord Jesus Christ's desire and design for his church. And as we today discuss these issues where the church is not agreed upon, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for your protection, Lord. We pray for unity. We pray for joy in unity. We pray for delight in unity. We pray for humility, for oneness and in spirit. We pray for joyful unity despite whatever differences may be there within us. In Jesus' name, we pray. I'll keep preaching. You all keep praying. Please. That will give me great comfort. Um, at New City, uh, for the last 10 years, we are celebrating our 10th year uh, this year. For the last 10 years, we've lived by a very simple philosophy on how to navigate these differences. A very simple philosophy. We broadly place all theology and all doctrines into two baskets. The first basket is what we call core, non-negotiable doctrines of the highest importance. Let's call these A doctrines. Then we have a second basket. The second basket is we, what we consider secondary doctrines where we believe we must allow some room for flexibility and differences and freedom because the global church has not agreed on this. On these doctrines, we are not going to take a posture we know best. So our stand is right. No, we're going to take a humble posture and say the global church is divided. So we're going to consider and we will allow some freedom and flexibility. So once we place all doctrines and all theology into these two baskets, then we follow three very simple guiding principles. The first guiding principle will come up for us on screen. With regard to the A doctrines, anyone who desires to enjoy true covenantal membership in New City needs to be full in full agreement to all the A doctrines. I'll explain what, the, what our A doctrines are. But on B doctrines... You're welcome to be a spiritual member of New City Church, a covenantal member of New City Church, irrespective of what you may believe uh, on the B doctrines. However, the third guiding principle, all elders and all leaders in New City need to be in full agreement on both A and on B doctrines. I'll unpack this somewhere as we go along. But first, let's look at what we place under A doctrines and what we place under B doctrines. We must also be uh, cognizant and respectful of the fact 
that what a church may consider A doctrine, what a, consider, what a church may consider B doctrine, may be A doctrine for another church. And we have no arguments with that. This is not about arguing with other churches. This is about us coming to a unity together. So let's look at what are our core and non-negotiable doctrines of highest importance. We have only two in this category. All the doctrines summarized in the Nicene Creed, which the early church fathers came together and wrote down to, to come to an understanding that this is the basic essence of the Christian faith. And second is the five solas, five solas the doctrine submitted, uh, summarized in the five solas. We, we unpack all of this. And the secondary doctrines, or B doctrines, where we have some flexibility and some freedom, we put these four big areas of differences among churches. Reformed or Armenian, infant baptism or adult baptism, charismatic or cessationist, complementarian or egalitarian. Do you remember the fourth song we sung? I'm actually tempted to sing that song. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I am Reformed. I am charismatic. I am Baptist. Did we sing any of those? No. So... That song is a beautiful illustration of what is central, the gospel. And so A doctrines and B doctrines. And we're going to walk through A and B doctrines and try and come to an understanding of where we stand on, what the two doctrines are. Try and understand them first and before we, we try and communicate where we stand on these. Let's start with the A doctrine. The Nicene Creed is the most foundational statement of the Christian faith. I'm going to walk, I'm just going to read through those and make quick comments here and there. That's a song we sung, actually. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. Even as I read this, would you allow yourself to be drawn to worship? Would you behold God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as I read this for us? We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him, through Christ, all things were made. And for us, for our salvation, He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, he, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped, glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, this Catholic does not mean the Roman Catholic denomination. The word Catholic quite literally means universal church. We've talked about that in the first sermon in the series. We believe in the one universal and apostolic church 
we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection from of the dead and the life of the world to come, longing for the new creation. Amen. Every piece of theology and doctrine given in this foundation of our faith is non-negotiable. We must believe in this to be members of the local church. That's the first doctrine. The second set of doctrines we have as a core, non-negotiable, of highest importance, is what are called the five solas. The word solas mean only or alone. And they emphasize the absolute and the non-negotiable aspects of these truths. In the history of the church, there was a season where the Bible was locked up and made inaccessible to Christians for various reasons. Uh, in this time, the, the Roman Catholic Church invented a whole set of false teachings that were just not there in the Bible. And then in the 16th century, the Reformation unfolded. And when the Reformation unfolded, the Bible was rediscovered. God's word was rediscovered. And the, the great reformers, they, they kind of over time put together these five solas, which kind of rejected all false doctrines and rediscovered the gospel. So here are the five solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in scripture alone, to the, to the glory of God alone. Let me unpack this. We are saved by grace alone, not because of any merit in us. God did not save us because we are black or white or pretty or not so pretty. No merit in us. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by faith alone, apart from any good works that we've done. Merit is inherent goodness. Good works is actual performance of good works. We are saved by faith alone, 100% by faith alone in Jesus who died and rose again from, from the dead for our sins. Not from any works we do. Our Bible reading doesn't save us. Our coming to church doesn't save us. Our tithing doesn't save us. Serving the poor doesn't save us. These are all evidences that we are already saved. Fourth, we, uh, third, we are saved by Christ alone. There is only one name under heaven and earth that, through which we might have salvation. That is the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we are saved by his atoning death and by his justifying resurrection. As revealed in scripture alone, the Bible is the absolute authority on all spiritual issues. Every local church must submit and live by what is spelt out in the Bible. All elders in a church, all members in a church, all deacons in a church, all leaders in a church must submit to the authority of the Holy Bible. And fifth, we are saved for the glory of God alone. The end goal of our salvation is not our salvation. The end goal of our salvation is the glory of God through our salvation. God is central. We are not. Five solas, five absolute non-negotiables. So the Nicene Creed and the five solas sum up our core and non-negotiable set of eight doctrines of highest importance. We must all believe in this. Now, let's move to the secondary doctrines or what we call 
the B doctrines. There are many good churches, churches that are being used by God, churches that believe in the Bible, wonderful leaders. I have met several of them in both these camps in all four issues, personally. They lead amazing churches, faithful churches, Christians without doubt, believers without doubt. Globally, many churches are not agreed on the B doctrines. So what I want to do now is walk through these doctrines, help us understand what they are, if you're not familiar with them. I'm going to try and give you a sense of where we stand on each of these doctrines. The first one is Reformed Theology and Armenian Theology. In my view, uh, this is the most significant difference uh, among Protestant churches. And there are many differences between Reformed theology and Armenian theology. If I were to uh, explain all of them, we are going to need a three-day seminar. And at the end of the three-day seminar, we will be arguing with each other for the next 30 years. So I have no desire uh, to get into that. But this is something that I have personally and deeply reflected over the last 12 to 13 years. And I want to try and distill the differences to the most simplest of ways. This is not holistic. This is not complete. We don't have time for a great grand discussion, uh, which has been going on for centuries. Uh, so I don't feel a need to add to that. But I want to, I've just distilled it and given to you in the most simple forms. Simple form. At the core of the difference between Reformed and Armenian theology is how, is how faith and free will works. Faith and free will, how it works. Reformed theology and Armenian theology both believe in faith and free will, but the two differ on how the two works. Armenian theology, that human beings still have free will to choose Jesus Christ as their savior even after the fall. So Armenians believe they made the choice to believe in Christ. Armenians believe they produced the faith that led to their salvation. They own their faith. They produce that faith. It is their contribution to their salvation. Reformed theology differs on this. Reformed theology holds that when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them with absolute free will. Reformed theology believes that after the fall, Adam and Eve and us, we became enslaved to sin. All of us, you, you know the battle with sin you have. I know the battle with sin I have, even as a believer. There is an enslavement with sin that happened before, uh, after the fall. And so justice of slave cannot operate in his or her own free will. A slave, a slave to sin, cannot freely choose to believe in Christ Jesus. The Bible says we are dead in our transgressions. And the last time I checked, corpses don't make choices. They're dead. And so Reformed theology holds that it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith that leads us to salvation. Reformed theology holds that salvation is the sovereign work of God. It's the sovereign gift of God. Even the faith to believe in Christ comes 
from God through the Holy Spirit. Reformed theology holds that regeneration precedes faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 to 8. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, even faith, is not your doing. It is the gift of God. So those are the two stands. Where do we stand as New City? I have a chart where I've tried to mark out where we stand. We're going to try and do this with all four uh, uh, areas of differences. Please continue praying for me. We stand more almost to on, on the reformed side. We believe New City unequivocally holds a reformed position. We believe that unless the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart, we cannot believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We are a reformed church. We won't budge from that stand. That's not up for discussion. But that said, I have made it also made it very clear that reformed in Armenianism is a B doctrine for us. Which means while the elders and the leaders will believe in this, this is the stance we hold as a church, members have freedom to, to lean whichever way they want to. We respect that, that freedom. Which means that you can be part of, the new, part of New City and reject the reformed stance, hold on to your Armenian position, and still be a covenantal member of New City Church. We, can, we are still members of one body. We can love one another. We can serve together. We can walk in unity together. We can be members of one local church. Even in Reformed, there are, you know, every, every basket has a few bad apples. Uh, even in Reformed, there is, this, uh, there is this edge of these hyper-Reformed. Those people believe that if you're Armenian, you're not a believer. We say that is nonsense. This, it is a B doctrine. Of primary importance is the Nicene Creed, the five solas. That's the foundation of our faith. And, and these things you can differ on. The global church is divided on. We're not going to take a stand and say we know better than all the churches. Our stand is the right stand. That's not a posture. We will take that on the gospel, central doctrines. Jesus was born of a virgin, sinless, tempted in every way, just as we are. Died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming back to judge the living and the dead. None of those we will compromise on. But some of these B doctrines, we must engage and love and, and humility. We don't know everything. We can all go and change. I've changed my position on a couple of these areas over the years. We must be humble. So that's the first big area of difference. We will have time for questions, which we'll answer later, but no questions out of the syllabus, please. The second area of difference between true and faithful Bible-believing churches is in the area of spiritual gifts. Broadly speaking, Protestant churches have two, to hold two positions. Good churches, Bible-believing churches. One is the cessationist position. A cessationist belief that the, miracle, that the miraculous spiritual gifts of healing and miracles and prophecy and tongue, tongues were meant only for the early church. They hold that when the canon of scripture was closed or the Bible was fully compiled, those miraculous gifts ceased. But charismatics or continuing, 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 
Continuationists, I got it right, continuationists say no, there is no biblical evidence of spiritual gifts. All the gifts, there's no biblical evidence that spiritual gifts have ceased. All the spiritual gifts continue even today. So where do we stand? Pray for me. I'm walking into a landmine now. Not just people here, people are listening to us on YouTube. So I know I'm walking into a landmine. Pray for me here. Let me spell out our stand. We are not cessationists. Absolutely. We are not cessationists. And, and we, do, we are not cessationists. We do not believe the miraculous gifts have completely ceased. At the same time, we are also not unqualifiedly charismatic. There is a lot of excessive and unbiblical charismatic practices like there are excessive reformed hyper-Calvinism practices that we reject. And I'm going to unpack this in, in as much detail as I can. For many churches, and I, I, I don't say this as a criticism, you know me, we don't criticize other churches, I'm just saying this as a matter of fact. For many churches, spiritual gifts is a central doctrine. They're talking about spiritual gifts 90% of that time. If that's you, we're going to disappoint you as a church. We are not that kind of a church. For us, the gospel is a central doctrine. We have the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus. We will not ignore the Holy Spirit, but we will not bypass Christ and celebrate the spiritual gifts. If you read the New Testament, at the most, and I'm being very generous here, at the most, 10% of the New Testament talks about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians, a few chapters. At the most, 10%. 90% of the New Testament is about the gospel. It's about spiritual formation. It's about discipleship. It's about growing in Christ-likeness. It's about mission. It's about fruit of the Spirit. It's about serving one another in, with many ordinary, non-miraculous gifts. Gifts of hospitality. Gifts of love. And this is the balance we desire to maintain. Not ignoring spiritual gifts, not getting obsessed with spiritual gifts. We believe in a wise and a holistic and appropriate exercise of gifts held in balance with all other aspects of spiritual growth and Christian living and discipleship. If you were to really read Whichever, you know, some of you might be full-blown charismatics here. Some of you might be full-blown cessationists here. You're both welcome to be part of New City. We can walk together. Whichever position, if you happen to hold either of these diverse positions, if you were to read the New Testament extremely objectively, you will find that the New Testament warns against the abuse of spiritual gifts as much as it encourages the use of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we won't have the time to go there, but please go home and read it, is a beautiful example of how the Apostle Paul holds both in balance. And that's the kind of position we are hoping to live in. Acknowledging, again, I'm sorry if I disappoint you here, New City is not a perfect church. Our theology is not 100% perfect. We try to be, we will make mistakes, but we'll be humble enough to learn from those mistakes. So we, that's the balance we want to live in. All that said, I'm not going to just skim the surface and move on. 
We're going to talk about the difficult things. So all that said, now let's talk about miraculous gifts of healing and miracles and uh, prophecy and tongues. I'll spell out our stand on all of these. First, the miraculous gifts. Miracles, healing, people with cancer getting healed. We believe God still does miracles. But we also believe that this is no longer the normative experience of the church. Normative means normal experience of the church. Every, in the early church, every single sick person who was brought either to Christ or to the apostles after that were all healed. I don't see any record except in a few places where it says people did not have faith, so Jesus couldn't work too many miracles. 99%, every sick person who was brought to Jesus or brought to the apostles were all healed. Miracles and healing were normal and normative in the early church. But right now, in God's sovereign plan, and I don't presume to understand why the Holy Spirit moves in that way, I don't understand, but right now, healing, such miraculous and supernatural uh, miracles and healings are more exceptions than the norm. We will pray for supernatural. Anyone who is sick, we will pray for divine supernatural healing. But we will not believe or teach that God will and must do a miracle every time we pray for anyone. So that's our stand on miraculous and supernatural healings and, and miracles. The second charismatic or, or uh, miraculous gift is the gift of prophecy. Now sadly, I think this is one of the most misused or abused spiritual gifts today. There are all kinds of wrong teachings and practices. I will not criticize any church or practice, but I will spell out our stand. We believe with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, that the Bible is the ultimate, final, and complete revelation of God to us. The Bible is infallible. So we believe any exercise of the prophetic gift must be deeply, deeply, deeply grounded in the Bible, in the Word of God. Let me unpack this. At New City Church, we believe that the faithful and weekly expository preaching of God's Word is the highest and the safest exercise of the prophetic gift. Because it's based on God's Word. A hundred people may listen to an expository sermon faithful to God's word and the Holy Spirit can speak prophetically and uniquely and specifically to a hundred people at the same time. We're not saying this is the only exercise place to exercise the prophetic gift. We are saying expository preaching of God's word is the highest and the safest expression of the prophetic gift. Outside of preaching, faithful preaching, explicitly preaching of God's word, there are cases where the prophetic gift can apply, can operate. Uh, but let me again give some caveats. If someone is not giving themselves to the daily and diligent and prayerful meditation of God's word, if you do not have a daily joyful discipline of spending 30 minutes, 45 minutes reading, meditating, praying through God's word, if you've not been doing that for years and months, 
And if you believe, or if someone who does not do that and comes up and says, I have a prophetic word, the elders of the church are not going to encourage that. Because we believe the prophetic gift must be rooted in God's word. Why, why do we say that? The prophetic gift, unlike the word of God, is not infallible. We are, uh, we, the Bible says, we know in part, we prophesy in part. And, you know, sometimes we are not able to distinguish what is God's voice and what is our own flesh. And I'm not saying we do this maliciously, not at all. None of us, I'm sure, or anybody, no one exercising the prophetic gift in other churches or anywhere, is not doing it out of intention to deceive. That's not at all what I'm saying. Out of our good intentions, out of our love for people, we could potentially, highly likely, if we are not enjoying God's word daily, very likely we are likely moving in our flesh with good intentions. And you know what the beauty is? God can use even that. Right? But we need to discern and, 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 and make sure that the prophetic gift is, is rooted in God's word. So for safety at New City, we believe that prophetic words largely, largely need to apply or explain or illuminate God's word. The prophetic gifting must flow from God's word. No prophetic word must say anything that God's word has not already said. Let me give you an example, a real practical example. Imagine you have two job offers on hand and you have to decide which one. You go to the Bible and read through the entire Bible, which job should I pick? The Bible is not going to tell you which job precisely you should pick. The Bible will tell you, pick the job where you can serve more sacrificially. The Bible will tell you, pick the job where you can die to self and live for Christ. Uh, the Bible will tell you, pick the job where you can be stewards of the, all the gifts God has given you. That if God has given you 10 talents, you can multiply that into 10 more talents. The Bible will tell you that. The Bible will give you a lot of guidelines and the Bible will leave it to us to prayerfully depend on the Holy Spirit for wisdom out of prayerful dependence maybe talk to gospel community and take that decision and prayerfully wait on God to live that decision or trusting that as Romans 8 says we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his grace right that's that, that the God in his sovereignty has given us the Bible for that purpose. Now, if someone comes to you and says, you told him I have two jobs, I need to decide, and someone prays and says, I have the prophetic gift, uh, I want to come and I, I'm telling you, I, I really feel uh, God is asking you to take this job. Again, out of, out of posture of humility, we're not going to be dismissive of that. Right? The Bible has called us to discern prophecies. We want to say, that is fallible. Can God speak like that? He can. I'm not going to say God will never speak like that. I mean, God, God gives us, let me rephrase myself, it's not more prophetic. God can give us impressions. He can guide us. But those impressions and guidances we think we hear from God are fallible. And only God's word is infallible. 
And so prophetic words like that, we, we, we kind of, we want to, we'd rather be safe. And we, we don't lean towards that. We want the gift of the prophetic to be completely grounded in God's word. At the same time, maintain a posture of humility that the Holy Spirit can guide us, can, can intervene in our lives in many different ways. But, but our greatest safety is to remain rooted in God's word. So you see, I'm taking... I'm sticking to the stand. We are not cessationist, but we are not unqualifiedly charismatic. That way I don't get stoned by either parties. Third, uh, the gift of tongues. We again want to hold this in healthy balance. We do not believe that the gift of tongues has completely ceased. But we do wonder why we never see the gift of interpreting tongues being exercised. You see the the, the balance here, the healthy balance here? I've been a follower of Christ Jesus for over 30 years now. And in all my 30 years, I've never seen, and I've moved around a lot in charismatic circles. My first 10 years were in Pentecostal and charismatic backgrounds. 15 years were in Pentecostal and and charismatic uh, uh, backgrounds. In all those years, I've never seen the gift of tongues being interpreted. And unlike the day of Pentecost, when the tongues were intelligible, people could understand. I've never seen uh, the gift of tongues being exercised intelligibly. Even then, we do not hold the position that the gift of tongues have ceased. It's a secondary doctrine. We want to give freedom. You want to know what I do? Walk up to me personally and I'll tell you happily. We want to give that freedom. This is a B doctrine. And one principle we do follow when it comes to the exercise of the gift of tongues, is a principle of intelligibility in corporate prayer and worship. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 18 to 19. I thank God, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, not me. Uh, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, in intelligible words, in human languages that people can understand. I would rather speak five words of my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. See the balance? The principle of intelligibility in corporate worship. Or look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers, we call them explorers, enter, will they not say, you're all out of your minds? principle of intelligibility in corporate worship. So we do not believe tongues have ceased, but we do believe that intelligible tongues, uh, sorry, unintelligible tongues really don't have a meaningful role in public worship. Even when two or three gather to pray, let's say you and I are praying, and and you you exercise the gift of tongues, and you burst forth in, in praying in tongues, how can I agree with you and say amen? I might as well read a book or the test match is going on. I can watch the test match. Hope India is winning. Right? I, I'm completely unengaged. How, how can I say amen to you? And I don't even know what I'm praying. How can we pray together? It's just like how can two people who don't know a language speak, uh, the same language speak with each other? Right? So that's our stand on tongues. Overall, we are not cessationist, but we are not unqualifiedly charismatic. We, we don't want to put the Holy Spirit in any kind of a box. We want to go with a posture of humility, believing that the Holy Spirit resides in us, He dwells in us, and 
he works the kingdom of God in our hearts and in the world around us. The final word on spiritual gifts. The final word. I don't think anyone can argue with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Love. Love. Love is the heart of all Christian life. So where do we stand on that chart? Of uh, If you can bring that slide up. A cessation is charismatic. We're kind of, oh, so the alignment got mixed. Thank you for saving me. I can blame it on the slides and not take a stand. Thank you. Praise God. Maybe that's prophetic. Maybe I shouldn't say it's fell out of my stand. Just joking. So cessationist here, charismatic here. Uh, we are a little more than the middle. Because we want to be humble. You know, we, we don't know it all. I would say we're definitely not that extreme. We're definitely not that extreme. Uh, we're definitely not in the middle. We are a little more leaning towards a little more. So hold that and hold that in balance. Uh, I hope everyone's happy. Third area, and we'll close with this. The fourth area we're going to look at next week or the week after. Third area of difference, this is very quick, between true and faithful Bible-believing churches is on baptism. Some churches believe in infant baptism. That, you know, that, uh, and they believe that as soon as a child is born, the parents bring the infant to be baptized. At that point in time, the child has no ability to decide, make a decision, come to faith. Uh, but some churches believe in infant baptism. I'm going to give you resources to read up on both. Other churches, like us, believe only in believer's baptism. I don't have time to explain both. And, but what I'm going to do at the end of the, in this sermon series, every week I've been sending you resources. So today I'm going to send you four resources. First, I'm going to send you a biblical case for infant baptism, a biblical case for adult-only or believers-only baptism. I appreciate the biblical case for infant baptism, if there are any infant baptists uh, around here. I appreciate it. I respect the view. It has a biblical ca case, but that's not where we stand. And so, but you have some freedom to believe in it as members. You have freedom. I'll talk about that. And the second resource I'm going to say, give you is biblical case for cessationism and biblical case for uh, continuing, continuing charismatic. I'll stick to charismatic and know what's, what's happening. So I'll send you those resources. Read both very balanced articles. And we, we go with a posture of humility. We have our stand. We know our stand. But we want to, you know, be respectful to others who believe, who disagree on secondary B doctrines. I'm going to give you both uh, resources. So because good and faithful Bible-believing churches disagree on this, we are not putting it in an A doctrine. We are very clear that this is a B doctrine. What does this mean? Practically, what does this mean at New City Church? At New City Church, we only believe, and all the elders and the leaders, as I said, only believe and administer believers' baptism by immersion. Uh, we do not, and I will never, the elders of the church will never baptize an infant. But if you believe in infant baptism and have not been baptized as a believer and your theology says you don't need to, your infant baptism is good enough for you, we respect that. We are happy to receive you as a member of New City Church. We will strongly encourage you to consider believers baptism, but rest assured if you're an infant baptist, you will never be forced in your city. You can be part of everything we do as a church. You can be a member in every sense. But I said, all leaders and elders have to agree on A and B doctrines. 
And all elders and leaders will give all members freedom to disagree on the B doctrines. Our goal is unity. So let me quickly, and where do we stand on this infant baptism, believer's baptism? We're kind of almost there. I mean, I'm just, I want to give room uh, a little bit in every of these spaces. Okay, so where do we stand in summary? Secondary B doctrines. Uh, New City Church is reformed. New City Church is not cessationist. We are also not unqualifiedly charismatic. A New City Church believes in uh, believer's baptism by immersion. Complementarian, egalitarian, we'll either look at next week or the week after next. As a church, we believe, preach, and practice our stand on secondary doctrines. I want to be clear about that. This is what we believe. This is what we preach. This is what we practice. All leaders and elders must necessarily submit and believe in these doctrines. If someone who does not believe in A and B, we will not call that person to eldership or or leadership. But we still keep these in the B doctrines for members to kind of choose, give them freedom and flexibility because the global church is not agreed on these secondary doctrines. And we will humbly leave and have healthy room for different beliefs among covenantal members of New City on the B doctrines. Now, this is very important. In this age of social media rage and and WhatsApp controversies, I want to make something very, very, very clear. On secondary doctrines, as members, not as elders and leaders, as members, you are free to believe whatever you lean towards. We will respect that. But you are not free to argue and cause division. In the 10 years in New City, this is the first time I'm preaching all this in such explicit manner. And I hope, and I do not intend to preach this again for the next 10 years. I hope there's no need. We're moving into membership, so we have to spell this out. It's going to be there in the membership documents for those of us who who delight to, to give ourselves to a covenantal lifestyle. That's what biblical membership and local church is. So we're not going to keep talking about this. We will not argue on this. We have, and I'll be absolutely clear, and I speak with the authority of an elder here. All the authority God has invested me in as an elder, I'm exercising and saying this. We will have a zero-tolerance policy on any behavior that causes division and disrupts the unity of the local church. You're free to believe. And I've said what New City's stand is, and I welcome members with different stands, with an open heart and open arms. And you, we hope you stay. I hope nobody leaves New City Church at the end of the sermon. I mean, I'd be really disappointed. Because who, all of you who experience New City, you know who we are. You know our values. You know our love for Jesus. And we feel that's enough to unify us. Right? So you're free to believe. But you're not free to argue and cause division and disruption in the church. If you, if you want to take an extreme stand in any of these areas where we, we don't take that extreme stand... I don't think New City will be a good church for you, right? But no divisions. We don't want arguments. I want to be very, very clear. Zero tolerance policy. Allow me to close with the Apostle Paul's stirring exhortation to unity that we began this sermon with. After I close in prayer, the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in the fourth song on the Nicene Creed. And we're going to partake of the body and blood of Christ Jesus together. You can believe whatever you want in the secondary doctrines. 
we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're all going to be with Christ in the new creation who comes again. We'll wait till there to settle our differences. Right now we can live in peace and joy and brotherhood and sisterhood and harmony and fruitfulness. We can live in unity because the Bible says, love one another. By this the world will know that you are the disciples of Christ Jesus. Let me close with the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Apostle Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, and patience, which all of us so desperately lack, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let us pray. Father, we find great joy and delight that in your sovereign grace, in your sovereign pleasure, in your sovereign time, you are moving us. I dare say you're moving us prophetically, Lord, based on your word of God to move into a season of living in a covenantal lifestyle of worship, of service, of engaging the culture in the gospel, a covenantal lifestyle of membership in the local church. We see what you're doing. We see what your word is calling us to. We submit in joyful delight. And we pray, Lord, just as you have protected us over the last 10 years with unity and joy and peace and a sense of being on mission together, accomplishing great things by your grace, including the CEO outreach that we saw last week and amazing things that you've done over the last 10 years in your grace, according to your steadfast love. Help us, Lord, in the next 10 years and in the next 10 years and in the next 10 years, this church and all the churches we plant in your grace will continue to flourish in the unity, Lord, of being in one body, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one father. And in all that, may we bring glory to you and may, may we draw explorers to saving faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.